0: Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time for us to just come and just uh, have a singular focus on you. I pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and relationship with you and that you'll just be with us and help us to glorify you in everything we do. And we love you so much, amen. So I wanted to start this morning with a memory that I have and I'm wondering if anyone else has a memory that is similar and I'm pretty sure we all do. But do you remember a time when you were little, when you were a kid, and you just got a little too chummy with your parents. Like, you were a little too friendly with your parents. Do y'all have memories like that? I'm guessing y'all, most people probably do. I'm guessing your memory is not like mine, though. So let me tell you, it's like burned in my brain. And it's just weird. So I remember one time when I was growing up, I was like probably five or six, I think. And I was playing with my dad. I was just sitting with him in a chair. And this is honestly one of my earliest memories. Like, if I think back as far as I can, this is one of those memories. But we were sitting in a chair, and we were wrestling, and we were playing, and we were fighting, and out of nowhere, I don't know where I got this idea, I don't know what came over me, but I was playing with him, and out of nowhere, I decided to bite his nose. And it wasn't like a nibble, it was like chomp, right? Like, I was a dinosaur or something, okay? Okay. And, again, I don't know where that came from, but as soon as I did it, I immediately knew something was wrong, okay? I remember the, my dad's eyes, and I remember, like, okay, something, something happened here, and that look told me that something bad was going to happen, and something bad did happen. Of course, uh, the consequence involved my dad's hand moving in a quick way towards my general vicinity— and there was crying as a result, of course. So, but I remember that because that was the time that I learned that I could have fun with my dad, but there was a line, right? There was a, there was a difference, okay? He was dad. I was child. There was a line. We were not equal. I can't just do whatever I want to with my dad, right? There was differences there. And I'm sure we all have some type of memory. In fact, I would honestly love to hear what other people's memory of that is because I'm sure we all learned very quickly that lesson, right? And so there's that difference in role as child and parent that you're not equals. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at a parable again where Jesus helps us realize there's a difference in our roles with God, right? And just like it was really important for me to learn that lesson with my dad, I think it's super important for us to learn that lesson with God as well. And hopefully we don't have quick hands moving in our vicinity for that one. And so I believe it's really important to look at that. To start, though, before we look at our parable, before we look at the main portion of Scripture that we're going to look at, I wanted to begin with the topic that we're going to be focusing on, which is a truth about the life of a Christ follower. And that truth is that we are all called to do good works, right? We're all called to do good works for Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chap- starting in Matthew chapter 5, Pastor Mark went through that for a couple months, right? And so, like, when I open my Bible, it still goes to Matthew 5. I don't know what else has happened since then, but Matthew 5 is where it opens. And he's giving an important sermon to a large group of people. And he's going through a lot of different topics and a lot of different lessons. But one of the most striking statements that he makes is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. If you want to flip there, you can look at it, and I'm going to read it as well. Matthew five fourteen and 15 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a sand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In this statement, Jesus is telling us to live a life that makes a difference. As we live in accordance to God's will, we should not hide it. People around us should see that there's something different, that our good works are something different. And because of that, give glory to God, right? Paul goes so far as to say in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one of the biggest instructions we have as a follower of Christ is to do good works. And in fact, that's what we were created for. That's what Paul says. We're created for that. It's a basic belief that all Christ Christ followers try to live out, right? So some of the things that we do to try to live out that life and to have good works is to speak kind words, to act lovingly to one another, even when somebody's our enemy. We practice patience, self-control, we pray, we attend church, we minister with the body of Christ, we read our Bibles, we forgive people, and even when they don't deserve it. We give money to the needy, we financially support our brothers and sisters in Christ, we lead and support our families in a godly way, and so on and so forth. There's a huge list of things that we do to try to live out good works, all right? These, and these are crucially important in the life of a follower of Christ. And because that's so important, Again, just like last week, I would like us to make sure that we are thinking about them in the right way, all right? So last week, just a small recap, we talked about a parable in Luke that showed us there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God, how uh, we have to come before him with empty hands, not with a list of good things that we've done, trying to earn our way to him. We have to understand that it's only through God's love that we can come to him right? And how it's not even possible to create a list of things that is good enough to impress God. That's what we talked about last week. But here we are, we're seeing that works is a crucial, important part of our lives. So because of that, I thought it was paramount that we look at how to think about these good works that we're called to do. Because if we're not supposed to look at our deeds as a checklist of things that we've done for God, then how are we supposed to look at them? How are we supposed to approach them and perceive them if that's not just a list of things for us to lift towards God, right? If it's so important, we have to make sure that our minds are right as we move forward living for Christ, all right? So now we'll flip to Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to mainly be today. Luke 17, and we're going to be focused on verses 7 through 10. And as you're flipping there, just kind of Background on what's happening here. So in chapter 16, Jesus had been talking to the Pharisees, right? Um, And he was telling them, he was giving them many lessons on different topics. And after talking to the Pharisees, who were examples of prideful living and how not to do things, Jesus looked at his disciples in chapter 17 and tried to teach them how they should live, okay? And in chapter 17, he was telling the uh, disciples, a bunch of many parables, like verses one through 10 is full of four different parables, right? And real quick, a parable, in short, you can talk a lot about what a parable is, but in general, a parable is a short story that Jesus used to try to teach a lesson, right? It's a simple story that illustrates a moral or a spiritual lesson. So that's what he's doing here. And he's giving them back to back to back to the disciples. And in verses one through 10, He gives directions on how to live humble lives, and he gives it in multiple ways. So he tells them truly humble people are restrained from offending others. They're ready to forgive. They're marked by recognition of weakness. And then the last one, they're characterized by a rejection of honor. And so that's where we're going to pick up in verses 7 through 10. And this is the last short little parable he gives in these. So starting in verse 7, it's the uh, parable of the unworthy servants. It says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather ask, say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. All right. So this parable's significance far outweighs the attention that it normally receives. I wouldn't say that this is a popular parable. So like, I worked at ASP for eight years, and it was my job each day to give the Bible story to the kids. Not once did this parable come up, right? I've been doing children's ministry since I was 17, so 13 years of doing children's ministry, and I've never talked about this parable with kids before. And then I've been doing a Sunday school class with adults for like four or five years. I can't remember. Whatever day Troy told me I was going to teach, that's whenever I started. I can't remember when that was. But, but with all that, for four years, we've never looked at this. I've never taught on this before. And I think it's probably because in some ways it makes us uncomfortable. The story that Jesus uses about a servant probably makes us uncomfortable. And the lesson that it's portraying isn't super warm and fuzzy, right? Right? Where you, we like to hear the things about God loving us and that the, everything we can do, we do for God. And we like the warm, fuzzy feeling inside of us. And this parable doesn't exactly portray that, right? But it's important. And it directly relates to how we should approach our mission of living a life of good deeds for the Lord, okay? So before we like dive into the actual verses, one thing that's super important is that we have to understand the cultural context of what's happening here. Because the story that Jesus uses with this servant, or some um, versions of the Bible say slave here instead of servant. This idea of servant and slave and master is something that we in the 21st century are just not very familiar with. Not the way that Jesus' audience was whenever he spoke this parable. So first of all, the Greek word that's used for servant here also does mean slave. And the word slave and the idea of servant's servant, have a total terrible connotation in our culture, right? But that just wasn't the same in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, all right? We envision a lot of negativity, right? We envision probably rich, mean people mistreating their subordinates in terrible multiple ways. And that's what we think of whenever we think of like that servant-master relationship. But again, that's just not what Jesus was talking about here. That happened after Jesus, What Jesus is talking about, the culture is something different. It wasn't upper class rich people who had servants and treated them unjustly uh, like what we think of. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was totally different. Even people of little means had servants or slaves to work in their homes or their field. And this offered security to those people. And it offered food to those people. And a lot of times, the household only had like one servant. Like It wasn't like one person had a bunch of people It was like, here's a family and they have one servant that helps them do stuff, that type of thing. A family could need, even need help in a rented field. So like if you have a family and like I don't, they don't even own the land, but they still need help. They still need that servant uh, to help them with what's going on. So that idea is just totally different because there was a worthiness. There was a good relationship there. So we want to understand what that relationship looked like. And what it looked like was the servant had acceptance of authority, and there was obedience to that authority. That was huge, right? There was a sense of worth and meaning, especially when the master was a great man, which whenever we're talking about this parable, the master is going to be God, and so we have the greatest example of a master there. So keeping all that in mind, the servant role was not something that the disciples would have looked at the same way that we initially do. They would have looked at it in a different light, and so What they would think of is masters accept the responsibility of that person. And then the servant enjoys that total security that they have in that relationship. And they labor out of a sense of duty and loyalty, not because they're expecting payment. All right, we live in this society where we go to work from nine to five and we work not because we like feel loyalty to people, not all of us at least, but we work because we're getting paid for it. Where that's not exactly the same as what's going on here. It's that sense of duty and that loyalty and that relationship between the master and the servant. So all of this is important because we're talking about our relationship with God here. We don't want to misunderstand that. We don't want to push something else into that idea. We want to make sure that we're clear on what Jesus is saying. So now that we kind of understand that a little bit better, let's look, we'll just kind of look verse by verse real quick. So verse seven, it says, well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. So the first thing is, which of you at the very beginning? That was a phrase that Jesus used quite a few times, and it always expected a negative answer. So anytime he said, "Which of you do blah 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 blah," the answer is no. Okay. So this and so whenever he asks, which one of you having a servant is going to say to them, "Hey, come on, come like relax with me," the answer is no. That's that's just not going to happen. And then also. Just to make sure that we understand what's going on here, that word dine in the Greek, yeah, whenever he says, come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, and he's like inviting him to eat, that meal that he's inviting him to is not like a late eight o'clock meal after hard, hard days of work. Like this meal that they're talking about in the Greek word, it's like a three o'clock meal after like a short day's work. So it's not like a torturous, horrible day that the servant's coming in from, right? But it was early in the afternoon. And the point to this is to understand, he's not saying, does the master allow the servant to eat or drink or rest? That's not the point. He's saying, does the master extend privilege to the servant who fulfills his daily assignment? Just because he fulfilled his daily assignment, do you extend him extra privilege? And the answer was no, all right? So that's, as he asked that question, the disciples would immediately be like, no, that's, that's not what would happen. And so in verse 8 he says, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. So verse 8 really exemplifies that relationship that the master is not the equivalent of the servant. The easy like, equality that we sometimes assign with Jesus and give to Jesus needs to be corrected. All right? we, are, we are friends of Jesus and he does walk with us. But we are not his equals, right? In uh, John chapter 13, this, the story of Jesus washing uh, the disciples' feet is happening. And he serves them in one of the biggest ways possible. It was absolutely unheard of that somebody of a higher degree would get down and wash your feet. And so he was serving them. He was, like, showing them a huge act right here. But even after he does that, in chapter 13, verse 16... Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. Even when he does that, he's clarifying the relationship here. He's saying the servant is still not greater than the master. And again, it's like parenting. Go back to that story that I had, uh, that I mentioned before. We have fun and we do things and we share good times with our kids, hopefully. But at the end of the day, the parent and the child are not equal. They are not the same. I have this saying with my oldest, Liam, because he always tries to help out and he tries to do things for us. And I have to say, hey, are you the daddy? And he says, no. And I say, all right, let me do that. I have to clarify that relationship all the time. I have to make sure that we understand, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And just like how we have that relationship with parents, that's what's going on here. We're setting up that the master and the servant are not equals. There's a role that has to be played here. So moving to verse 9, it says, does he thank the servant? Because he did what he was commanded. That word think in the Greek, it means a lot more than what we immediately understand in the English, but it has roots in grace and favor. So does he have grace or favor for the servant? In this context between like the superior and inferior role, that understanding of favor implies like a reward that would be too great to be earned. So when we look at this parable, we have to understand that the word think here is not just a friendly word of appreciation. It's not saying, Are you just going to say, hey, thanks, good job for what you've done? That's not what's being implied here. It's being implied that it's much more than that. It's asking if the master is indebted to the servant. Does the master owe the servant some type of reward for doing what he was told? And resoundingly, the answer, again, is no. The idea of debt of gratitude that must be offered to, like, even the score That's not what's going on here if you think about it that way you would be placing the master somehow in debt to the slave or to the servant but that's not what's going on does the master owe the servant anything because he did was what was expected of him absolutely not all right and so the last verse verse 10 so you also when you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty so it uses that word command or told or duty And those, honestly, those words are not super popular in American culture nowadays because we like to soften things and make sure that, like, we're thinking about other people and taking in their considerations. And all that is good, but that's not what's going on here. He's saying what you've been told, what you've been commanded, to be real disciples of God, we have to be obedient to God's word and do our duty as followers of Jesus in a fallen world. We have to... Understand that we are the servants, and we're being told what to do here. And then also another word in this um, in this verse that is important to look at. It says we are unworthy servants. That word "unworthy" or some versions, uh, if you have a different version, says "useless." Again, there's like this linguistic and cultural context that helps capture the fuller idea of what's going on here and what Jesus meant. That word unworthy implies like a deeper meaning of, again, something being owed. It's not just that we're unworthy, it's that we are owed nothing else. It's like at the end of the day, we say, you don't owe us anything else. We have just done our duty. And so at the end of this parable, there's a lot that we can take in to adjust our thinking on the good works that we do. It's made clear that we have a role in our relationship with God, that we are his servants. We are given commands and we are expected to follow them. Specifically, we're commanded to live a life that shines God's light to the people around us. And we're commanded to shine our light so that others can see our good works, right? As we do this, we're not meant to keep a list of these things. We don't bring these things before God looking for acknowledgement. That's what we talked about last week. We're not to bring that looking for something extra uh, like we've done something that's super important. Honestly, that reminds me of husbands and myself included. Whenever I was writing this, I was like, man, I, I got to work on that. But think about husbands sometimes. It's, it's a stereotype. But sometimes we have to let our wives know everything that we've done just so we can be recognized for it. You know, we're looking for that acknowledgement. We're looking for that compliment. And we're looking to earn that love and attention. Be like, hey, I, I did the dishes earlier. Folded like two loads of clothes. Like, look at all this I've done. I even went outside and like did whatever, you know. And as husbands, we do that, or some of us, I'm sure. Maybe not everybody. And so it reminds me of that. Sometimes we take that idea to God, and we're like, hey, God, I prayed yesterday. I'm, like, helping with three different ministries over here. I'm working with kids, and we're doing all this stuff, and we're just, like, maybe not, like, consciously thinking that way, but our attitude towards what we do, we're just kind of always off to the side, like, God, look, look what I've done. I'm, I'm doing a good job here. And you're looking for that acknowledgement. You're looking for that but no, we do our good works because that's what's expected of us. Everything that we've, given, that we've been given by God, salvation, his promises to us through Christ, all of it is given out of his goodness, not because we've done anything special. We're only doing our duty. That's all. Honestly, this is tricky to keep correct in our minds because I does offer Christ followers a reward, right? So in Luke chapter 12, He's serving his disciples at a banquet. Even that, however, was only because of his grace. Never, neither in this world or in heaven, will believers merit anything that God wants, all right, that we can give him. We have to remove that perplexity from our minds. So often in the Bible, we're promised rewards for our works, but we allow our minds to think that we are earning that, right? We allow our minds to think that we're earning it because of some type of merit. But the answer is easy. The rewards are promised from the mere good pleasure of God, not because we're owed anything. It's a mistake to think that there's that mutual relationship between reward and merit. It is not the value of our works that God promises us anything, but only through His favor. That is exceedingly undeserved. We don't deserve anything that God gives us, and our works are not earning that. He's, we're only receiving that through His goodness. And again, we can think about parents. It's, that relationship is very helpful here. When parents give their children gifts, is it because they earned it? Most of the time, no. For me, my kids aren't even old enough to like, truly earn anything, but Felicia and I still give them gifts, and we give them out of love, but our kids didn't do anything to earn it, right? So basically, the Bible does offer us a reward for our works eternity with our Lord, and eternity with that loving Father. But that doesn't gain us any merit, all right? The reward is promised from the goodness of God. The relationship between reward and merit is not mutual. The value of our works does not gain that reward. It's only through the favor of God. So, I present to you the question that I asked at the very beginning. I said, if we're not supposed to look at our deeds as a checklist of things that we've done for God— then how are we supposed to think about them? How are we supposed to approach them and perceive them? And the answer is that we're supposed to look at them as our duty. God is our master. We are his servants. We are created and commanded to live out a life of good works. And that's all. It's our duty to God because we love him and respect him and followers of Christ. When it comes to good works, it's our duty. It's not gaining, we're not doing works to earn anything. We're not doing works to gain anything. We're not teaching kids on Sundays and Wednesdays to earn anything. We're not leading and attending a Bible study to earn anything. We're, and we're not like helping people at the grocery store to earn anything. We're only doing those things because it's our duty. The idea from last week and this week are twofold. We can only come to God with empty hands because we're broken sinners and there's nothing we can do to earn our way to God. And because of that, as we live the lives that we are commanded to, doing good works, We're doing them because it's our duty, not as a way to impress God or earn favor with God. That's it. I think a good way to sum up this whole idea is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This is the last verse. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the free gift of God. Only by grace have you been saved through faith, not by your own doing. It's a free gift from God. And I pray that that will stay with us this week, that we would understand that we are doing these things because it's a good work, because it's our duty, not because earning us anything, but because it's our duty. And that's what God has commanded. And because we have that relationship with him, that's why we do it. That's it. That's it. So uh, I'll pray real quick and then we'll keep worshiping. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for this short parable, this short message that we can take. And even though sometimes it doesn't give us those warm, fuzzy feelings, that we can learn something from it, that we can take from it a way to change our lives and change our minds and how we think about the works that we do. And I pray that we would continue to work effortlessly with strong effort to do these good works for you because you are such a great God. And help us have the right mindset as we do those, God, that we are in thinking about it and perceiving them in the right way. Uh, Be with us this week, And help us, as always, just to glorify you in everything we do. And we just love you so much. Amen.